0: Nietzsche sometimes says, herd morality for the herd, but not for higher human beings.
1: Hello, this is Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 184. And this episode is with Brian Leiter, who is Carl N. Llewellyn, professor of jurisprudence at the University of Chicago Law School, proprietor of the world's most popular philosophy blog, Leiter Reports, and also most significantly, a distinguished past guest of this show because in episode 97 we talked all about Karl Marx ideology and historical materialism but in this episode we discuss another incredibly important influential historical figure that being Friedrich Nietzsche and in particular we get into the genealogy of morals the gay science Moral Realism and Anti-Realism, Moral Psychology, uh, Nietzsche's criticism of morality, and his thoughts on free will. Brian's latest book is Moral Psychology with Nietzsche. There's a link to that in the description. Something else I should mention is that, sadly, uh, a couple of minutes of Brian's recording were lost when we were talking about Nietzsche's writing style. So, spoiler, he was a very good writer. And then we had to switch platforms, so there might be a slight jump in quality, but it's an otherwise, content-wise, awesome episode. Reviews, comments, likes, please leave those. There's Robinson's Fashion Empire, if you would like some t-shirts. And then there's also a Patreon, link is in the description, where you can get an ad-free RSS feed, show notes, and transcript. Now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Brian. Who was Nietzsche and why did he become a figure that you wanted to spend so much time on in your career?
0: Okay, so, uh, Nietzsche, uh, was, uh, Of course, 19th century German philosopher. He was born in 1844, died in 1900, but suffered a a mental, physical breakdown in early 1889. So, um, you know, before he was even 45 years old. So his productive life was relatively short. Um, He did not start out aiming to be a philosopher. He started out as a scholar of classics, what they called in Germany then classical philology, He was an expert on the philosophy, literature, culture, history of ancient Greece and Rome. That was his specialty. He wrote a very technical classics dissertation. Um, He had originally gone to university actually to be a theology student, um, and then after one year switched to classics. And uh, as I like to say, he was the most spectacular dropout from theology in the history of the world. Since, as everyone knows, Nietzsche said, God is dead. He became, of course, a mortal enemy of Christian theology and Christianity. Um, but anyway, he began his career training to be an academic uh, classics professor. He was extremely good at it. He received an appointment to uh, the University of Basel in Switzerland um, before he'd even finished the PhD, which was unheard of. He was 25 years old. It was because he was, you know, I, he had so impressed his, uh, his, his teacher. Um, but he very quickly lost interest with academic classics. Um, in uh, the late 1860s, uh, he kind of discovered philosophy outside the ancient world. He discovered Arthur Schopenhauer, whose work was becoming very popular. The world was will and representation. And he discovered uh, a man named Friedrich Lange. Um, who wrote what was a quite important book at the time called The History of Materialism, which introduced um, Nietzsche's sort of contemporary German materialism and naturalism, things we'll talk more about in in a little bit. So his interests were already shifting. He began reading Kant very seriously. Um, And his first publication, major publication in 1872, was a book called The Birth of Tragedy Out of the Spirit of Music, um, it was not a conventional work of classic scholarship. When he sent it to his former mentor, the mentor did not reply. <laughs> um, he was kind of embarrassed by it because it was so polemical. Um, and, uh, and that kind of marked his break with the traditional academic route. Because of ill health, he retired fully in 1879. He got a disability pension awarded by the university and he then spent the next 10 years trying to find, you know, a healthy climate. Um, the Italian Riviera, the French Riviera, he goes to Sils Maria in Switzerland in the summers, uh, which is an absolutely beautiful place. Uh, he was plagued by migraines, by nausea, by vision problems. He had terrible, terrible health. But he spent this decade writing all the books for which he's most famous. Um uh, that includes Thus Spoke Zarathustra, On the Genealogy of Morality, Beyond Good and Evil, Twilight of the Idols, and, and so on. Um, and he was largely ignored. By the mid-1880s, he was having to pay to publish his own books, which is kind of embarrassing. Right? Uh, the original self-publication, except he would pay an actual publisher to print 500 copies. Um, nobody was really reading it or responding Um And then in 1888, a man named Georg Brandes, uh, who was a Danish literary critic and public intellectual, began giving public lectures in Copenhagen on Nietzsche. Um, And and Brandes and Nietzsche corresponded. And at last, there was some recognition. And then some other people started writing to him. And then in January of 1889, while he was in the city of Torino in uh, northern Italy, he had a sort of final breakdown. Um, There's lots of speculations about what was the cause of his illness. His father had died at the age of 35 of what they called softening of the brain, some medical category that was. Uh, There may have been a genetic component to this. It may have been syphilis, which was extremely common in 19th century Europe. In any case, he spent the, you know, uh, from January 1889 until his death in 1900, he was basically an invalid. Um, And the irony, of course, is that in in his autobiography Ecke Hommel, one of his last books, Nietzsche says some people are born posthumously, and Nietzsche was born posthumously. He becomes more and more famous throughout the eighteen nineties. And to get a sense of how famous he became in the year nineteen fourteen, at the start of World War One, the German Kaiser purchased two hundred and fifty thousand copies of Thus Spoke Zarathustra and gave them to the troops. Right. So by then he's just this cultural sensation. Everybody's interested in Nietzsche in Europe. in People in the English-speaking world are starting to uh, to read him. Um, and of course, you know, when the Nazis came to power, um, they had to have their Nietzsche too. <laughs> everybody cl- everybody had a version of of Nietzsche uh, at the time. And of course, the Nazi version prevailed because they seized power. That's a separate story. Maybe we'll talk about. Okay, that's just sort of the general biography. Now, why is uh, you know Nietzsche been so interesting to me that ever since I read him on uh, Easter Sunday in 1982, I've been reading and thinking about Nietzsche. Um, uh, I, let's start with, he's first a, a great writer. Um, it's a challenge for translators. Walter Kaufman, the best known in English translators, is particularly good at sort of capturing the style in English. Other translators aren't as good at that, but he really is a great writer. Um, And then, you know, he deals with, as it were, the most momentous topics. Um, You know, uh, uh, God is dead, right? What does that mean for morality, for value, for the point of life, for the justification of existence? Um, You know, uh, what's the status of our moral beliefs, you know? We act and talk as though, you know, Judeo Christian morality that's just what morality is you know, altruism, equal worth of human beings, qua human beings, um, consideration for the suffering, suffering should be alleviated. And you know, and in a way, that's Nietzsche's starting point because he's a scholar of classical antiquity and he can see right away that Judeo Christian morality is a historical idiosyncrasy, that it looks nothing like, um, the morality of the Greek or Roman world. A good point of reference for listeners, think of the Homeric epics. You read the Homeric epics, and many people have either read them or by now see the movies. <laughs> you see right away that this is not a world of Judeo-Christian morality. Right? Um, you know, The um, suffering is sort of neither here nor there. Um, the virtues of the Homeric world are the virtues of power, of wealth, of glory, of honor, of sexual satisfaction um, and triumph, right? It's the Christian world, as Nietzsche notices, is a kind of inversion of of this this world. Right? So Nietzsche raises this question: Where did our morality come from? What does what is the value of these values, as he often puts it? Um, and um, and then he locates this question, of course, in the context of you know, the major intellectual event of the 19th century, which is that for the first time, people are openly skeptical about the existence of God. Before that, people are skeptical. You know, Hume is discreetly skeptical, so he doesn't end up in jail. Um, But by the middle, by the 19th century, there is lots of, there's a consensus building among intellectuals that, of course, the idea that there's some supernatural being, you know, overseeing the universe, giving meaning and shape to our lives is just nonsense.
1: So, you, you mentioned naturalism a few minutes ago, also in connection with Hume. And philosophical naturalism hasn't come up on the show for a very long time. So, what is philosophical naturalism? And what do you mean when you write, as you wrote in your paper, Nietzsche's Naturalistic Moral Anti Psychology, uh, that his naturalism is methodological?
0: So philosophers mean a lot of different things. By naturalism, I'm going to focus on a characterization that I think is helpful for reading Nietzsche, but also applies to certain other philosophical naturalists. Um, so the the central idea of philosophical naturalism is that there's a kind of continuity between philosophy and the empirical sciences, especially. You know? um, in uh, in a more ambitious form, it is the claim uh, which uh, you know which is often associated with uh, the American twentieth century American philosopher Quine um, that philosophy has no distinctive method of its own. There's no distinctive philosophical way of producing truths about the world. Philosophy, in in Quine's view, it's kind of the abstract, reflective branch of empirical science. Right? Um, something like that is. Nietzsche's view um, with a couple of a couple of caveats right one is Nietzsche thinks um that uh Nietzsche thinks that genuine philosophers as he calls them right do something very distinctive which is they create values they create new ways of valuing things um whereas philosophers like Kant or Hegel he calls them great philosophical laborers all they do, as he puts it, is press into formulas existing moral valuations. Okay? Nietzsche certainly doesn't want to be that kind of philosophical laborer, right? And I think Nietzsche does think of himself as someone who creates values, right? But I take it Nietzsche thinks of his main critical task, right, is getting us into a position where we can actually create new values by realizing that the more the moralities we have inherited right? Admit of naturalistic explanation. We can give historical explanation of how this morality arose and see that it's just one kind of morality, right? That it is not the only way of thinking about questions, questions of value. So Nietzsche also has a much broader conception of science, say, than someone like Quine, though very late in his life, Quine loosens up. But uh, for much of his career, Quine has a very austere view of which sciences count. Nietzsche, you know, in in German, the word for science is Wissenschaft. Wissenschaft in German does not mean natural science. It means any rigorous methodology that can be applied to a subject matter and, uh, you know, and give us knowledge of truths about that subject matter. So history is a Wissenschaft. Classics. As Nietzsche thinks of a is a Wissenschaft or a science. Okay? Um, and, but Nietzsche also, and this is important to understand about Nietzsche, and I think a lot of people often don't know this about him, is that Nietzsche became, starting in the 1860s when he first read Friedrich Wangner's History of Materialism, becomes very interested in contemporary German physiology and the life sciences, and eventually also in, in Darwin. Um, and you know he begins extensive reading um, of journals in the sciences, and he gets you know this handbook of physiology. and, and Germany, as you may know, it was the birthplace of modern physiology, starting in the eighteen forties and and afterwards. And so all of this makes a very very strong impression on Nietzsche, and he takes over this idea from these German materialists that you can give naturalistic explanations, that is explanations in terms of physiology, but also importantly for Nietzsche in terms of psychology of why people believe what they believe and do what they do, right? Um, That you can also historicize people's moral beliefs. You can show where they came from. You can, in particular, this is the subject of his famous genealogy of morality, you can show what psychological mechanisms motivated right the development of different parts of our our modern uh modern morality so Nietzsche is a naturalist in the sense that he wants to treat human beings like any other part of nature and that he takes his cue for how to understand human beings from the sciences though importantly Nietzsche and this he has in common with David Hume is also what I call a speculative naturalist right that is um you know Hume is very impressed by Newtonian mechanics But Newtonian mechanics uh, has nothing to say about human beings or human society. So Hume is going to speculate using sort of Newtonian mechanics as his model and try to give a causal and uh, naturalistic explanation of human beings, of human morality, of human societies, and, and, and so on. Nietzsche is also a kind of speculative naturalist that he reads in physiology, he reads in the life sciences, but then he What doesn't exist at the time he's writing is a sophisticated form of human psychology. The main form of psychology at the time is introspection. And Nietzsche is a complete skeptic about introspection. Nietzsche, you know, anticipates a lot of ideas from Freud. One of them is that um, most of our mental life is unconscious and we can't simply introspect that. right? Um, We need a more sophisticated psychology in which we infer the actual drives or the actual motivations underlying human behavior even though they may be completely opaque to the actors themselves even though the actors themselves may be unaware of the genuine causes of their action and so nietzsche develops a very sort of elaborate speculative um, uh, psychology um, you know that has sort of two key elements to it one is the notion of a drive a kind of standing disposition um to act in certain kinds of ways, to seek out certain kinds of affective or emotional uh experiences, right? So the sex drive is a standing disposition to seek sexual arousal, right? for example. Um drives operate unconsciously, right? But the other key part of his general picture of human psychology is that um you know, people have emotions or affects and those they actually experience, though they may not realize where they're really coming from. That is what's what's giving rise to them. Um, And so, you know, with this bare bones apparatus um, in which our unconscious life is primary, um, drives, push and pull us in different directions, often unbeknownst to us. Um, and then we do experience affects and emotions, and they are much more powerful than reason, right? That they are, you know, and again, this is very like Hume, right? Um, reason is largely, you know, impotent in the face of, as Hume would put it, the passions, right? Reason is the slave of the passions. As Hume puts it, Nietzsche has actually a very similar, uh, similar kind of view, except he speaks not about passions, but about um, emotions about affect in, which is affects, um, and roughly feelings and affects as we would say in English. Um, so that's the sense in which Nietzsche is a naturalist. Uh, it's going to explain in largely causal terms, um, you know, the psychological mechanisms in particular that gave rise to the Judeo-Christian morality we find ourselves with today. That, that in a capsule formulation is what his naturalism is about. But by the same token, he thinks that kind of naturalism is useful for the project of creating new values, right? One way it's useful is that it sort of debunks the pretense of this morality to be bestowed upon us by God, right? No, no, Nietzsche's gonna tell you naturalistically how this morality triumphed, what kind of psychological mechanisms in human beings that exploited in order to be so successful. Okay. Um, and second of all, the naturalistic explanation is going to show us that um, Christian morality is not the only kind of morality there is. Right? Um, and here Nietzsche, as you know, uh, with history um, and with, you know, philology, etymology in particular, Um, he's going to show that the words, the moral words we have used have been very different over time in different languages. And that the distinctions that we think of as central to morality, such as the difference between good actions and evil actions, um, were not distinctions drawn um, in ancient cultures and in ancient moralities. And we can talk more about that when we get back to the genealogy. Hmm.
1: One of the phrases that you just, or sentences you just, uttered that stuck out at me most was that the moralities we inherit admit of natural explanations, as opposed, of course, to supernatural explanations. And you you just hinted at this uh, a couple of minutes ago, but is that the chief implication of the famous phrase that you also just said a few minutes ago, that God is dead, namely that morality does not come from God, or is there a whole family of meanings behind that?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that I would say that's the primary meaning. Um, Now, Nietzsche does think that belief in Christian morality has been propped up by belief in God. And Nietzsche is hopeful, because he is opposed to Christian morality, he is hopeful that as um, belief in God becomes more and more incredible, that this will ultimately undermine Christian morality. So Nietzsche views the death of God, as it were, as good news, or as he likes to say with a little you know, irony, Christian irony, he says, glad tidings. The death of God is glad tidings because it might ultimately undermine um, Christ, the dominance of Christian morality. Um, when Nietzsche first introduces the idea, or most famously introduces it in a passage from uh, the 1882 book called The Gay Science, which is written the year before Zarathustra, um, uh, the context is, uh, uh someone he calls the madman that goes into the town square and announces God is dead and we have killed him. All right. Um, but the important thing to notice is that the people around him in the town square are already atheists, right? Um, they don't believe in God. And this is the important thing for Nietzsche is that by the middle of the 19th century, there are all kinds of reasons people are giving up belief in God, right, um, you know, there's Darwin, there's naturalistic explanations of the evolution of the of the earth, there's Kant's famous attack on natural teleology, I mean, there's all kinds of things coalescing to explain why people would believe in God, right, and that eliminate the traditional need for God as an explanatory posit, right, um, so Nietzsche just takes that for granted, so he doesn't he doesn't argue for his atheism is it's a word of the baseline and it's the baseline when the, the, the madman announces the death of God. Right. But the madman says, we don't really realize how serious a crisis this is. We ha- don't realize the implications of it. Right? And this is why the crowd thinks he's a madman, not because he denies the existence of God. They're all atheists, but they're all sort of like, Uh, You can think they're like the Richard Dawkins of the day. They're free-thinking atheists. Of course, we know this God stuff is nonsense and superstition, but it doesn't change anything about our view of morality or value or anything. We're all all still good Judeo-Christian moralists, right? Um, And what Nietzsche thinks is that these complacent atheists who think, oh, you can give up the belief in God and still take morality seriously, he thinks they don't even realize the actual import of the belief that they've given up. They haven't seen yet what the consequences of that belief are gonna be. Um, Now, I'll just say as an aside, I think Nietzsche was wrong about this, um, and he he was wrong by his own lights. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, Nietzsche is what we call in the philosophical traditions a sort of moral sentimentalist. He thinks moral judgments are essentially emotional responses, right? You feel sadness you feel happiness in response to different kinds of states of affairs or actions or something, right? Um, You see someone suffering and you empathize with them and you feel this is bad, they're suffering, right? Um, So he's a moral sentimentalist, right? And the thing is, if you train people to have certain kinds of moral sentiments, which Nietzsche elsewhere in his writing recognizes, right, this is what upbringing is, right? As he says, children are, you know, like born imitators. They're like apes. They imitate the moral responses and sentiments of their parents, of their community, and so on. Um, So that if at the foundation of our moral judgments are just these emotional responses that we've gotten into the habit of having, then it doesn't matter if the belief in God becomes incredible because it's not actually the the, the rational foundation for belief in morality doesn't matter on the sentimentalist view. It's just a matter of sentiments, right? So there's a slight irony in this. I mean, Nietzsche's picking up on the idea, as, as he often says, that the Christian God is a particularly egalitarian God. That is, everyone is equal before God. Everyone is equal because they have a little bit of the divine in them, right? The human soul created by God, or the, you know, kind of mirrors God, right? So there's this very strong egalitarian streak in, in Christianity. Um, and in our, in Christian morality. And, and just to be clear, there can be an egalitarian streak in Christian morality and lots of Christian hypocrisy too, okay? But there's no doubt the egalitarian streak is there. Everyone is equal in the eyes of God. Everyone's familiar with that kind of uh, way of thinking in the Christian tradition. And, um, <clears throat> you know, so Nietzsche thinks, well, if there is no God, then why think people are equal, right? But, uh, and, you know, that seems like a fair point. But if you're a moral sentimentalist, then you recognize you can breed into people, you know, sentiments in favor of egalitarianism and against inequality. And it doesn't matter if they have no rational foundation. But that's roughly what I take Nietzsche to mean by, by God is dead. It is certainly true that once if you realize there is no God. Then you can't explain, you know, Judeo-Christian morality by saying, well, God wrote it down on a tablet and gave it to Moses. Right? That's just make-believe. Right. But as I say, Nietzsche takes for granted those explanations are no longer credible um, in the nineteenth, nineteenth century, and they're they're no more credible today than they were in the mid-19th century.
1: Just as an aside, so you mentioned the etymology of moral terms. And there is an etymology that I'm curious about. So gay has had a number of meanings. Uh, I know it means homosexual men. I know it has meant happiness, but I cannot think of any meaning that I know of, of gay that substantiates the title, the gay science of that book that came out before Zarathustra.
0: Yeah. Well, so it's, I mean, it's the German frolic, And it it could be cheerful, it could be gay, but there's no question at the time, gay doesn't have any connotation related to sexual orientation, right? And maybe, you know, to the modern English ear, cheerful is better in that regard as as the translation, right? Um, uh, Let me just say, it would take us too far afield for me to try to explain why he calls the book the cheerful science, (laughs) but... um, you know Nietzsche does think of himself as a kind of cheerful person, <laughs> um, cheerful message, right? I mean, this may seem ironic, but you know, as I said, he thinks the no, the the news that God is dead is actually a bit of glad tidings, because it 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 raises the prospect of a world that is free of the dominance of Christian morality, which he thinks is you know uh, is going to be a wonderful a wonderful thing, and we can talk more about why he hates Christian morality so much, but I'll, I'll let you pick the order in which we
1: Yeah, yeah, we'll get to the genealogy in a few minutes. One other debate that I thought would be good to touch on is so given this base of naturalism and then moral sentimentalism, which you just described, can you st- sketch the debate about moral realism and where Nietzsche falls in and his opposition to Platonists about morality since divine command theory is as you as you pointed out not credible already by that point
0: for purposes here we can take moral realism to be the view right um that there are facts about what's morally right and wrong that do not depend on what we believe is morally right and wrong about what our sentiments or attitudes are about what's right and wrong they are completely independent of us right and we can try to discover them and maybe we'll get lucky and discover them Right, but even if we discover them, they're still uh, independent of us. Right. So if slavery is morally wrong, it doesn't depend on what we happen to think about slavery. It doesn't even depend on what we might think about slavery in two hundred years or five hundred years. Right. It was always morally wrong. You know? That would be the moral realist view. Um, the anti-realist view denies that. The anti-realist view says um that there are no facts about what's morally right and wrong that are independent of human judgment or attitude there are different versions of these kind of you know anti-realism um uh you know the one of the most infamous ones is the one associated with protagoras right whereas protagoras says you know man is the measure of all things and in one version, that means what's morally right and wrong for me is what's morally right and wrong for me. What's morally right and wrong for you is morally right and wrong for you. But my subjective responses to determine right and wrongness, your subjective responses to determine right and wrongness for you. Um, a version, uh, a more plausible version that was certainly uh, popular in antiquity and that Plato hated, um, Plato is the great enemy of moral anti-realism, uh, was the sort of communal version, right? There's what's right and wrong for the Greeks, and there's what's right and wrong for the Egyptians. And it's relative to the community. But what's right and wrong depends on a kind of communal consensus about about these things. Um, There's a slightly tricky nuanced issue here in talking about moral realism and anti-realism in the uh, early 21st century, which is that starting in the early 20th century, philosophers got very interested I'm not in what I would simply in what I would call the metaphysical question. That is, are there moral truths that exist exist in the world independent of what we think about them? Um, They got interested in a semantic question. That is, what's the meaning of the moral language we use when we're talking about moral questions? Um, And moral realism is often conjoined with a semantic view that's generally called cognitivism which says that when we say slavery is wrong, grammatically that just looks exactly like Brian's desk is brown. You can't see my desk. Your sofa is brown. Is it brown? Okay. The sofa is brown, slavery is wrong, right? We predicate something, of a subject, right? The sofa is brown um, is in fact true because your sofa is in fact brown, if I'm not being misled here by the the lighting. and Cognitivists say same thing with moral judgments, right? Um, they, they represent features of the world and they are either true or false depending upon what the world is like. Since the moral realist says slavery is wrong independent of what we think about it, the judgment slavery is wrong turns out to be true. Okay. There are views about the meaning of moral language that often are called non-cognitivist or expressivist views in which we should think of moral judgments Um, not as trying to represent what the world is like, but trying to express certain feelings or attitudes that we have. Nietzsche no doubt says some things that sound like expressivism, but the point I wanna emphasize is he wasn't thinking about the question, what's the meaning of moral language? Nobody was really thinking about that question prior to the 20th 20th century. What he's thinking about is the question that everyone all the way back to the pre-Socratics and Plato were thinking about, which is, um, is there an objectively true morality, right? That would be the moral realist position for our purposes. Or um, is there no objectively true morality? Is what's morally right and wrong fundamentally dependent on the individual, the community, or something like that, okay? Everybody in the history of philosophy has a view on that, right? Um, The pre-Socratic philosophers tended towards moral anti-realism. Plato, you know, was the, most, uh, the first and the most famous moral realist. Plato had a particular metaphysical picture. You don't need to agree with his whole metaphysical picture to nonetheless realize he was, you know, the first and most important moral realist. Um, the philosophers we know as the sophists were generally moral anti-realists. Nietzsche is much more sympathetic to the sophists. As he points out, Plato succeeded in defaming the sophists for history, right? Because sophists now has a majority of connotation. It did not at the time. Um, that is the sophists were philosophers who defended certain views, including anti-realist views about morality. Okay. Nietzsche is on the side of moral anti-realism. I have a particularly radical view about this, but I do actually think it's Nietzsche's view, which is, I think he's an anti-realist about all value judgments, not just moral value judgments. Um, but again, I think for the sake of, of not spending the next six hours here, I probably shouldn't do that let's just focus on morality, but you know, realism about morality fits with the project of giving a naturalistic explanation of morality. right there are no objective moral truths there are things that people's cultures communities take to be moral truths and now we need to explain why because it's not because they're discovering the moral truths that exist out there in the world something else is going on and that's what we need to explain hmm.
1: well actually though just to defend your belief that nietzsche is an anti-realist about all value i do have some some quotes lined up uh, serendipitously. So in the gay science, uh, you write, Nietzsche observes, whatever has value in our world now does not have value in itself according to its nature. Nature is always valueless, but has been given value at some time as a present. And it was we who gave and bestowed it. So that sounds pretty much textbook value anti-realist to me.
0: I, I, I agree with that. Some people will point out there's a context in which he's saying this that complicates the picture a little, but in a way that I think is totally consistent with the value anti-realism, right? Nature is valueless, right? We are the ones. Now, the the complication is Nietzsche doesn't think everybody necessarily gives values. Um, He thinks, you know, in, in that passage, he's talking about poets, right? Some certain important figures in the history of culture give a lot of values, right? Um, And this goes back to what I said earlier, which is Nietzsche thinks genuine philosophers are creators of values, which raises the question, who's actually a genuine philosopher? He told us Kant and Hegel aren't; They're just great philosophical laborers. Who's a genuine philosopher? I take it Nietzsche thinks Plato is. I take it he thinks that Plato creates a set of values that, with the help of Christianity, take over the world, Is one of another one of his funny jokes is Christianity is Platonism for the people, right? Um, Christianity takes over the moral metaphysics. It takes over Plato's moral realism. It takes over a, one of the central ideas in Plato and Socrates, namely that um, you know uh, you can't lead a good life without knowledge of the truth, right? That you've got to have correct knowledge of things in order to live well, right? And in Christianity, that, you know, becomes the truth shall shall set you free, right? Truth is very important to the Christian tradition. Again, Nietzsche thinks it's taken over um, um, from Plato. We could talk about differences between Plato and Christianity. They would have been obvious enough to Nietzsche since his, you know, father was a Lutheran pastor. His grandfathers were both Lutheran pastors. He was almost going to become one himself. He knew his Christianity And he knew his his plato um so plato is someone who creates value i think in each sense right and then through christianity it becomes the values that permeate our culture and that are largely taken for granted this is what morality is right this is the only way to think about what's right and wrong good and bad worthwhile not worthwhile and so on Hmm.
1: well i will i will read one more quote just to capture this moral Anti realism before we move on. And this one's from Thus Spake Zarathustra. And it also, I think, epitomizes some of his style. But Nietzsche writes Verily, men gave themselves all their good and evil. Verily, they did not take it. They did not find it, nor did it come to them as a voice from heaven. So naturalism there. Only man placed value in things to preserve himself. He alone created a meaning for things, a human meaning. Thus he calls himself man, which means the Esteemer. Yeah. So. Good. That's
0: a, a very apt quote. Um, you know, the interesting thing is the idea that Nietzsche is a moral anti-realist and a, and a general value anti-realist um, is an extremely common view, except in some of the recent Anglophone, you know, English speaking uh, secondary literature of Nietzsche, um, where there's a lot of people who are desperate to say, no, 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 Nietzsche really thinks there's some objective values or something. Um, you know, I think Max Weber, the great German sociologist, you know, basically read Nietzsche correctly, like everybody else. Rudolf Carnap read Nietzsche this way. Um, you know, uh, Rudolf Carnap, the great logical positivist philosopher in the 20th century, uh, was actually a very big fan of Nietzsche because he thought that Nietzsche was a value anti-realist, and that when Nietzsche expressed values, he didn't pretend they were. Objectively true. He used literary devices to express them. That's Zarathustra. And then, as Carnap says, the rest of Beach's corpus is devoted to a kind of naturalistic, empirical explanation of morality, right? A kind of physiology, psychology, anthropology, you know, uh, account of how people came to believe in these kinds of values. And, you know, from Carnap's point of view, Carnap was a moral anti realist, certainly. Not clear he was a general value anti realist. That's more complicated. There's certainly, a moral anti realist that seems like the right way to do it, much preferable to Hegel and Kant for Carnap. <laughs> That's a little aside for the benefit of your listeners who know about Carnap. Um, this occurs in the, the same essay where Carnap ridicules Heidegger, you know, sentence the nothing nothings, and you know, says it's just Heidegger's just talking nonsense. And but what people often don't know is that that essay concludes with a great deal of praise for Nietzsche as. An exception to two hundred years of embarrassing German philosophy.
1: Mm -hmm. I I did a relatively recent episode with Tim Maudlin where we talked about logical positivism and the critique of metaphysics. But so, there's one last question I want to ask before we get to the genealogy, and I am wondering how Nietzsche's moral anti-realism, maybe culminates isn't the right word, but at least contributes to his skepticism about free will and moral responsibility
0: okay so i actually don't think it's um i mean i think it's compatible with the things he wants to say about free will i'm not sure it contributes to it in any way um you know nature is a skeptic about free will and moral responsibility because of his picture of human psychology right that our actions i mean i'll put it a little too simply but you know, as you know, I go into this in greater detail in my Moral Psychology with Nietzsche book from 2019. But the, the simple version of it is he thinks that um, the conscious mental states that precede our actions are not really the causes of our actions, right? That the real causes lie at a subconscious, unconscious level we're unaware of, right? And in that sense, we are causally determined to do the things we do, right? By mental states that we essentially have no control over whatsoever, and that we may even be entirely unaware of. Right? And you know, the thought is, well, how could you be responsible for doing things that you literally have no control over? You're doing them. Um, there's a recent trend in co- compatibilist defenses of free will. The compatibilist says the causal determination of the will is compatible with freedom and moral responsibility, right? The historical compatibilist said it's compatible as long as the will is causally determined in the right kind of way. Harry Frankfurt says, if you can identify with the mental state that determines your will, then you're free and responsible. And Nietzsche points out the mental state that determines what you actually do, right, is unknown to you, so you can't identify with it at all. Contemporary compatibles have moved away from this towards a reason-responsiveness view, right? So their idea is, well, as long as you're responsive to reasons for and against doing what you do, um, then you can be responsible for for what you do. And the problem again for Nietzsche is that the conscious reasons we may or may not be aware of and responsive to are causally inefficacious with respect to what we do, right? So it's just, it's literally flotsam on the surface of the ocean. And this gets into some complicated questions about Nietzsche's epiphenomenalism about conscious deliberation you know but he does deny that conscious deliberation is actually causally effective in bringing about our action and once you make that move you have a very hard time explaining how we could be free and morally responsible so that's kind of a condensed version of that um, people who are interested should read chapter five of moral psychology and yeah. each a much longer story
1: just uh an aside I've I recently read a couple of books by Daniel Dennett and I saw a, a, there was a passage that you quote of Nietzsche's unconsciousness from the gay science. And of course they have, I mean, Dan Dennett is a, a famous compatibilist, Nietzsche is not. But I was just amazed by how closely Nietzsche's thoughts about the origin of consciousness, parallel dan dennett's much much later and i think you've written that his moral psychology even though again it's it's far from contemporary times it's been empirically confirmed in many ways in the 20th century so he's very prescient
0: yes i mean i do think uh you know i think part of his genius was he was a very good speculative psychologist right that he had a you know he, he had some contemporaneous empirical information, but he could go well beyond it and, you know, make pretty uh, prescient judgments about the role of affect in, you know, an emotion and moral judgment about the relative unimportance of consciousness, um, about the extent to which our mental life, uh, is mostly in fact, unconscious. And, you know, there's various other things I think that um you know win a fair bit of support from uh from work done over the last 50 or 60 years obviously that's work someone like Dennett is engaging with directly um and you know so it's not surprising I agree with you there are there are many places um in in Dennett that uh that have certain echoes of Nietzsche, except of course Dennett is a compatibilist about about free will because then it is still in the grips of Judeo-Christian morality. (laughs) Whereas Nietzsche is not, right? That's That's the big difference between Nietzsche and Hume too, is that, you know, Hume may have been an atheist, but he was basically, he had a kind of optimistic, cheery view about human beings and human nature, right? So that even if there is no rational foundation for morality, fortunately, creatures like us have a sympathetic disposition. And out of that disposition, we can generate, you know, justice and morality and social life and so on. Um, Nietzsche has got a less optimistic, maybe a more Freudian take. That's anachronistic because Freud got it from Nietzsche um, on what human beings are like, right? So sure, they have a limited amount of sympathetic uh, disposition. They also have a very powerful impulse towards cruelty. And this is something that was very, very vivid to Nietzsche from his study of antiquity, right? Um, and not just antiquity. Right? I mean, Freud himself, Freud started with the view that there was only one drive, the pleasure drive. And you could explain all of human development just with that one drive and its fixation on different parts of the body, the, the mouth, the anus, the genitals at different stages of development. Uh, and then along comes World War One, And World War One did not look like a great exercise in pleasure. Um, and then Freud says, well, no, there's another fundamental drive. He calls it the death drive, but he says the death drive gets externalized, so it's really a drive towards aggression. Nietzsche, frankly, has a simpler version of this. There's no talk about a death drive. It's just a drive towards cruelty. Um, and I think Nietzsche is correct that the history of humanity gives overwhelming evidence of the enormous appeal of cruelty. Um, and it gets you know, sublimated and more restricted as, as time goes on. But it's you know it still pops up and not just when Donald Trump's on the campaign trail. Though you'll notice his cruelty does not turn off a certain segment of his (laughs) his supporters, right? So it's it still has a kind of weird purchase on the on the human psyche. Uh, Anyway, but maybe we'll talk more about that in the context of the genealogy. So
1: yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for bringing Freud into this because you know that. That's another interest of mine. I was curious about talking about Freud and Nietzsche, but yeah, Nietzsche, sorry. So let's uh, let's turn to the genealogy though. And before we talk about the genealogy of morals, what is the concept of a genealogy? Because you write that it was a new concept or a new method for philosophy in the first place.
0: Well, so he, that, that's not quite what, what I'd want to say about it. What, what mm. Nietzsche thinks is that genealogy for Nietzsche is just history done properly. And by the way, you've frozen again with the the thumbs
1: up. Okay. Yeah. I don't have myself on the screen. This must be an artifact of zoom that I'm not familiar with, but I will.
0: Can I keep talking? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. You can keep going.
0: Um, You know what Nietzsche thinks uh, is, uh, he uses the the German terms, genealogy, in the case of genealogy, and geschichte, in the case of history, uses them interchangeably, right? Um, And what he thinks is important to notice, right, um, is that it's a big mistake in certain domains, right, to assume that the present meaning or value of some practice or human activity Can be projected back into its origin right in a way it's a very darwinian point right that is something you know which had one function at the time that it first evolved may have a completely different function or no function at all you know thousands of years later right think of the you know the appendix right the appendix presumably served an evolutionary function now it serves no function at all what what nietzsche is critical of is histories of morality that assume that the present value or meaning of morality was always present if we go all the way back, right? Um, And so he takes as his particular target a view that, you know, morality is about, you know, helping others. It's about altruism. And so that would explain the origin of morality. People saw that it was useful to valorize helping other people, and that's why that became our, our morality. And Nietzsche thinks, no. This is not um, this is not good history, right? And it's not supported by the evidence, right? So, in the case of you know of, of Christian morality, right, the f- the first move he makes early in the genealogy is he says, "Look, um, let's look at the history, the etymology of terms for good and bad in the ancient languages, not just Greek and Latin, but he looks at a whole bunch of other looks at Arabic. No, no, not Arabic." But he's an you know, ancient Celtic, he's got a whole bunch of examples, right? And he says what you notice all of a sudden immediately about the terms good and bad is that they are completely tied up with social class and hierarchy. The good are the nobles, the good are the rulers, the bad are the poor, the subjugated, the slaves, right? So good is the central concept. Good is who we, the dominant class are, bad. Is a kind of afterthought. It's sort of pathetic. It's sort of contemptible, and he says you can see this across all these different ancient languages, right? And of course, that looks nothing like how Christianity thinks about good and bad, or what Nietzsche says is the distinctive Christian uh, contrast is good and evil, right? Um, <laughs> so in the ancient world, in the ancient world, we don't have, as it were, the analog for the uh, for the modern concept of evil for goza. In, in German, instead, it's gut und schlecht. That's good and bad in German, um, and that distinction is mirrored in the ancient languages. But it's a sort of class-based distinction. Right now, what Nietzsche thinks is that over time it sort of gets detached from class and comes to designate sort of, as he says, states of the soul. Right, so there's such a thing as being a person of noble character. Right. Um, and, you know, and again, if you think of the Homeric epics, right, the Homeric heroes are the good, right? They are the good ones, right? And the bad ones, the bad people are the ones who are cowards, who won't take revenge, right, who do shameful things. And the good ones are the ones who pursue glory, who take revenge on their enemies, who, you know, are successful in battle, right? That's the essence of goodness, okay? Um And now, of course, you start to notice something, which is that the the bad in the Homeric sense start to look a lot like the good in the Christian sense. The poor shall inherit the earth, right? The meek shall inherit the earth. Humility is a virtue, right? You know, uh, poverty, chastity, humility, right? As Nietzsche calls them the three great pomp words of the ascetic ideal, which we'll come back to, right? You know, central Christian ideals, right? In the Homeric world, right, they're objects of contempt. You're a bad person if you're poor, chaste, and humble. Um, Homeric heroes are not notable for their humility. So again, this is, you know, so he uses the etymology, the words as a first bit of evidence, a first clue. Um, But then the real, the main argument in the first essay of the genealogy, he says, okay, so in the ancient world, the key distinction was good and bad. How did this turn into Christian morality, which looks like a kind of inversion of the Homeric good-bad distinction? And here Nietzsche appeals to a psychological mechanism. right Now, here we see Nietzsche as a speculative psychologist. He says there's a psychological state that he calls raisonnement And he uses the German word. It's actually not the French word, it's the German word raisonnement You never know that in English because it's always italicized as a foreign word, but in the German text, it's not italicized because it's German. It's related to the French word, um, as uh, Rudiger Bittner has written. It, it, in German, it's got more of the connotation of a grudge, right? So what's raison de man? So raison de is kind of a feeling of wanting revenge, right? But not being able to do anything about it, right? So it's w- feeling like you want revenge on someone because they've harmed you, right? But you can't actually take revenge right? And that's when he says, Rezantamon becomes dangerous, right? It starts to stew. It starts to build up in the psyche, right? You know, so he calls Christian morality, slave morality, famously or infamously. And of course, Christianity first triumphed among the slave populations in the Roman empire, right? This, this is just a historical fact, right? But what is thinking is that those who are slaves, all right, you know, are harmed and oppressed in all kinds of ways, and the natural response to being harmed is to want revenge. Right? Um, again, go back to your Homeric heroes. Right, they're all about revenge. The big difference between them and the slaves in Nietzsche's story is that when Homeric heroes are wrong, then they want revenge. They go out and get it. <laughs> okay, the slaves occasionally have an uprising, but mostly they just stew in their resentment. Right, They can't do anything about it. They can't act um, to do anything about it, except for the occasional slave revolt, which is soon put down, right? And so Nietzsche has the following psychological hypothesis. When people suffer from ressentiment, from this desire for revenge that you can't actually do anything about, it leads people to revalue values. It leads people to invert values, right? And the model of this, of course, is the famous Aesop's fable, right? About the fox and the grapes, right? So the fox sees grapes hanging from the tree and thinks they look delicious, right? I want to have those grapes. And then after a while realizes he can't get up the tree, he can't get them, right? And so now he's very frustrated. So he revalues them. He says they aren't worth having. They're sour, right? They're not worth having. And this, he says, is what slave morality does to the master morality, as he calls it, of the ancient Roman world. It says that the Romans, you know, the Roman rulers are not the people we envy, right? It's not that we want to be like them, it's rather that they're evil. And we, the slaves, are the good ones. We who are meek, who are humble, who don't take revenge because we can't take revenge. We're the virtuous ones. Those people who think they're the good. And the noble, no, they're not. They're the wicked. They're damned to hell for eternity and so on. And, you know, now here Nietzsche is helped by his, you know, deep knowledge of the Bible, right? Um, You know, and and of the history of Christianity. Uh, Christianity is full of a lot of expressions of, you know, hatred, of pleasure in the revenge that God is going to exact upon, you know, uh, on the elites, right, when the time comes. And so he's got these great, you know, quotes from early church fathers, you know, who are just, you can see, salivating with pleasure at their picture of hell and the suffering that's going to be inflicted upon all these, uh, you know, uh, these pagan elites of the Roman Empire. But again, it makes perfect sense if the origin of Christian morality is out of this impulse for revenge that couldn't be achieved in reality. So it, manifested itself in a revaluation of values as, as Nietzsche, Nietzsche calls it, right? So that's the, as it were, the first, you know, bit of the story. How did Christian morality come into the world? It was motivated by the resentment of people who were powerless and oppressed. And it was a morality that, in Nietzsche's view, was in their interest, right? It's in the interest of the slaves, if they can convince everyone that being a slave is the way to be, and that being a Roman master is wicked and reprehensible. That's in very crude form the argument of the first essay of the genealogy. Um, the genealogy has three essays, and it's important to realize Nietzsche identifies other mechanisms as well. Many people just focus on the first essay, the famous master and slave morality and raison But the second and third essays add to the psychological picture. And let, I'll just give you a, a sort of brief description of, the sort of naturalistic argument. So the second essay, as it were, goes back to prehistory. You know, if the first essay you can sort of identify with the eventual triumph of Christianity in the Roman Empire, right? Which happens, you know, starting a little before Christ, you know, and, and is of course finalized by Constantinople's purely opportunistic conversion for political reasons in three hundred something or other. The second essay is kind of back in prehistory, right? And and the hypothesis of the second essay, it introduces a new psychological mechanism. And this is where Nietzsche talks most explicitly about the instinct or the drive for cruelty, right? And he thinks it's just a basic fact about human beings that they have a very powerful drive to do cruel things. And they take enormous pleasure in it, right? Which is clearer earlier on in human history. It's, It's much more masked. Now, right? but, you know, think of the, think of the Roman forum, you know, what was the classic form of entertainment on a on a, a weekday, a weekend afternoon? It wasn't the glad- gladiators, actually. Much more, po- though that was popular, but much more popular was they would release a whole bunch of African animals, you know, hippos, giraffes, lions, some elephants into the arena. And then a bunch of gladiators would come out and slaughter them. Right? Now this makes factory farming, you know, look downright, you know, gentle by comparison. But this was the form of entertainment, and we're going to go and watch the, you know, butchery of these animals. Right. So Nietzsche knows his, you know, ancient civilizations, and they have cruelty written all all over them. But not just in antiquity, of course. Um, so he thinks this is a basic fact about human beings: is they have this powerful instinct for cruelty. The problem is that um, you can't have a human society if people's instinct for cruelty is unchecked, right? That for human civilization to be possible, people have to restrain their cruelty. It has to be, uh, you know, restricted in some way. Because, you know, as I like to say to students, and you know, when we're sitting in the seminar room, I said, it'd be very hard to have a seminar on Nietzsche if there were a serious risk of you know people coming in raping pillaging and cannibalizing us right that would make it difficult okay uh it'd be very difficult to put on an opera under those circumstances um so civilization has to put limits on the expression of cruelty and now nietzsche has a view and freud shares this view actually which is he's got a kind of hydraulic picture of the mind right so if you've got some psychic energy if you've got a to drive towards cruelty okay and it can't express it, it can't discharge itself outward It doesn't just disappear, right? You know, if you're going to push it in, it's got to go somewhere else. And so Nietzsche says, and this is the second pillar of modern morality, right? And of all moralities, actually, is that it involves an internalization of cruelty, right? That instead of being cruel to others, we direct a certain amount of cruelty to ourselves through the development of what he calls a bad conscience, of the ability to set up ideals about what we should be, how we should act, and then criticize ourselves for failure to live up to them. And the most dramatic form of that, of course, is the Christian doctrine of original sin, right? That is, by the way, you, you've got your thumb up arrow again. Um, uh, that is, you know, in the Christian doctrine of original sin, um, you're guilty from the start, okay? Um, you're guilty from the very start. And um. And guilt is a painful emotion when genuinely experienced, right? And in Nietzsche's view, it's just internalized cruelty. Freud picks up this idea and it puts it at the center of civilization and its discontents, um, you know, uh, and um, about the internalization of, you know, aggression or, or cruelty. No acknowledgement of, of Nietzsche, but he, he clearly got the ideas from Nietzsche. A big difference between Nietzsche and Freud is that Freud thinks the explanation of guilt is that it's just internalized aggression, and Nietzsche thinks no. For bad conscience, bad when we internalize cruelty, we become capable of having a bad conscience about our actions. But bad conscience need not be guilty conscience. Right? Think of the difference between feeling ashamed versus feeling, you know, guilty. Right? And I think that's roughly what. Nietzsche has in mind. Something more is needed to explain why internalized cruelty produces the feelings of guilt. And Nietzsche's answer, and this is the third essay and the third pillar of the genealogy, is that um, bad conscience turns into Christian guilt when it is attached to a very particular normative ideal that he calls the ascetic ideal. Uh, ascetic means life denying, you know, very loosely, but it means, you know, he go back to something I mentioned earlier. Nietzsche says the three great pomp words of the ascetic ideal are chastity, poverty, humility. These are good things. These are virtues, right? But Nietzsche thinks people have sexual desires, right? They don't have any desire to be chaste. Um, people, uh, have desire for glory and power and prestige, not for humility, right? And people desire wealth, right? Material gratifications. They don't desire poverty, right? So these are ascetic ideals. They are to deny things that people want by nature, thinks things. Uh, okay. So then the question becomes, why is the ascetic ideal successful with human beings, right? Nietzsche says, you know, the planet Earth seen from afar is the ascetic planet par excellence, right? And what's he thinking of? Well, you know, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism in a certain way, uh, Judaism, Hinduism gets complicated, but there are elements of it there. They all have these very strong ascetic, life-denying dimensions to them, right? They all, to varying degrees, right? For example, they all stigmatize sexuality, right? They limit the proper forms of expression of it, right? They have, you know, quite severe penalties attached to inappropriate expressions of sexuality, okay. They're all ascetic religions. So Nietzsche's puzzle is how did this happen? Right? And it, again, you look at the Homeric epics, right? You look at sixth century Greece. You look at, you know, uh, the, the, what Thucydides tells us about Athens, right? In the Peloponnesian War. None of these are societies dominated by the ascetic ideal. Right? far, far from it, right? So how did the ascetic ideal triumph? And that's the final sort of missing piece in the story about our contemporary morality, because our contemporary morality embodies this asceticism. And Nietzsche here now introduces a third psychological mechanism. Um, he says, every animal instinctively strives for conditions under which it can experience its maximum feeling of power, right? This is sort of the psychological version of Nietzsche's idea of will to power, but I think it's the most important one for Nietzsche, that he thinks, just like there's an instinct for cruelty, there's this very powerful instinct to have a feeling of power. And now Nietzsche gives a very complicated psychological story that builds on this. What he says is that, basically, here's the very simple version. Um, For most people, the highest feeling of power they can have is not to give up on life altogether, right, to maintain the will to stay alive, right? And the argument for this, he says, is most people suffer by nature, right? That is, uh, it's just, you know, they, and, you know, you can understand this in, in ways that are obviously true, right? Some people suffer from physical ailments, right, they're just born with them, right? Um, But Nietzsche, and here he's influenced by Schopenhauer, thinks there's something about human psychology that guarantees suffering, right? We're endlessly in a state of desire. When we desire something, it's because there's something we want that we don't have, which is unpleasant. But the crazy thing about desire is even when you get what you want, you immediately have a new desire, right? So you're never, as it were, fully satisfied. The satisfactions are very temporary on, on this picture of of psychology. So he thinks suffering is just built into the human condition, right? And he thinks suffering gives rise to raison d'etre, okay? That, we learned that in the first essay, right? When the masters oppress the slaves, the slaves suffer, and now they want revenge. They experience raison d'etre. But if everybody suffers by nature to varying degrees, that means they're always experiencing raison d'etre. And The thing about Ressentiment is as Nietzsche puts it, it needs a direction, right? Um, It needs an object on which it can discharge itself because it's unbearable to suffer and not know why you suffer. As Nietzsche says at the end of the third essay, one of his most profound, I think, psychological insights is that the problem for human beings is not suffering per se, just look at human beings, they're very good at seeking out suffering. They're very good at doing things that produce suffering. The problem for human beings is meaningless suffering. Right? Because meaningless suffering, you don't know who to blame for the suffering. Right? That's what makes it, you don't know what really brought this about. Okay? Meaningless suffering, he says, is unbearable. You'd rather commit suicide than you know endure meaningless suffering. So people suffer by nature, it gives rise to rezantamad, Um, they need to know why do I suffer? What's the meaning of my suffering? And this is the brilliance of Christianity in particular. Christianity tells people why they suffer. It says the reason you suffer is because God has laid before you this ideal of how to live, the ascetic ideal. It tells you that you should not covet your neighbor's wife. You should not want their property. You should prefer poverty, chastity, and humility to, you know, riches and pride um, and, you know, sexual promiscuity. But everybody wants all these things they're not supposed to want. Right? Everybody has these fundamental drives and desires for these things that Christianity says, like the Christian God says, are forbidden. Okay? And now you know why you suffer at last. You suffer because you're a goddamn sinner. Right? That's the Christian explanation. Why are you so miserable? Your suffering isn't meaningless. You suffer because you're a sinner, because you desire and want the very things that God says are not valuable, that are evil, that are wicked, and you want them, and that's why you suffer, because you're a sinner. And Nietzsche says this this is the great trick of the ascetic ideal. It seduces people back to life, because it gives a meaning to their suffering, The meaning is a complete fiction, right? They don't suffer because of their sin. They suffer because of bad physiology, because of their psychology. You know, Nietzsche doesn't very often acknowledge they suffer because of their social or economic circumstances, but that too, right? That's why they suffer. But Christianity says, no, you suffer because you're a sinner. And for that to be plausible, you have to believe in the ascetic ideal, right? But it has the effect of giving these people a feeling of power they can hang on to life. They can't do much else, but they can hang on to life because at least they know why they're miserable. And of course, they're promised a redemption in another life and and so on. I've given you the kind of condensed summary of the argument of the genealogy, but notice, right, the goal is to give a fully naturalistic explanation in psychological terms of the origins of contemporary Judeo-Christian morality, right? de Mont plays a role in a particular historical period, internalization, cruelty sets the stage. And then, um, this desire for a feeling of power in the face of suffering, which gives rise to de Mont, that's the whole complicated story we just told that gives us explain sort of why ascetic ideals should be so attractive, um, to creatures like us, because it allows most people to achieve a feeling of power, by making their suffering intelligible and meaningful to them, right? Even though it's a fake explanation, they don't know that. Phew, that's the three S's of the genealogy.
1: Earlier in our conversation, you said that one of the questions Nietzsche was always asking was, what is the value of our values? And I understand that he's engaged in a critique of morality. And so what what I'm wondering is, where does this put the, put us in the end? If we are not supposed to be following the Judeo-Christian values as if they're the end all be all of morality, what does this leave us with? And is there anything practical for our daily lives or just our contemporary introspection that you take away from Nietzsche's genealogical reflections?
0: Okay, good. A perfectly fair question, of course. Um, um, first thing that needs to be said is, you know, it's not clear who is Nietzsche's intended audience, right? Um, you know, Nietzsche sometimes says, herd morality for the herd, but not for higher human beings, right? Um, in the 1870s, when he's younger, I think he holds out this idea of the, you know, sort of a cultural and political transformation of Europe will be helped along by Richard Wagner's music and, you know, and the birth of tragedy would, explain the role of music in transforming culture. And uh, that aspiration kind of dies out. I think he becomes less interested in politics, less interested in cultural uh, transformation. And, uh, and and that explains something very striking about Nietzsche's writing in the 1880s, which is he often, as it were, discourages certain readers from reading it. Not too many authors do this, right? But he kind of makes clear that this isn't for everyone. Right? This isn't for everyone. For some people, this won't make any sense at all. It'll sound like a crime, as he puts it, right? Uh, so he wants certain select readers, right, to take this this seriously. Right? so let's suppose we are among these select readers. I mean, the irony, of course, is Nietzsche writes so well that everyone wants to read him, right? If you only wanted select readers, you'd write as badly as Kant or Hegel, right? <laughs> and then you'd get a bunch of you know you know, dweeby graduate students and, you know, scholars, and that's the only people. But everyone reads Nietzsche because he writes so well. It's a little ironic. But let's suppose we are among Nietzsche's intended uh, readers who are, you know, uh, who share his ears, as he puts it, share his sensibilities. You know, Um, I take it what he hopes for for those readers is a certain kind of transformation of their consciousness. He hopes to disabuse them of, their starting point, which is that what's morality? Well, Judeo-Christian morality, that's all morality is. Right? It's the only set of values that really makes any sense. It was given to us by God. He'd like to adjust, change these readers' views about that. Right? And and part of the reason he wants to do this, and this is something we haven't touched on, but it's very important to his attack on morality, right? It's his answer to the question, what's the value of morality? His worry is that... Um, individuals who might be truly great human beings and he has three main well he has four main examples um goethe the great german poet dramatist essayist scientist you know the true renaissance man of you know the late 18th early 19th century uh beethoven is a second example a third is napoleon which was very common in the 19th century he was viewed as kind of a a military and political genius you know who did as it were put his vision of politics and society impose it on europe partly through force but partly through political ingenuity right france to this day is still napoleon's france in terms of its administrative and bureaucratic structure the fourth was nietzsche himself though he's a little more coy about that right and so nietzsche's question is all right nietzsche's thought is that you can't be a great human being like Beethoven or Goethe or Napoleon. If you took Christian morality seriously, right? if you really took Christian morality seriously, you couldn't practice what he calls the severe self love that is required for any great achievement. For example, right. Um, you know, Beethoven, you know, wasn't an out and out atheist, but if you read a biography of Beethoven, you see right away, he was not a very Christian fellow. He used everyone around him instrumentally for purposes of pursuing his musical work. Um, you know, uh, Nietzsche, excuse me, Beethoven could easily have descended into self pity about his suffering, right? Cause his suffering was horrible, right? I mean, here's a composer going deaf. Right? It's hard to imagine something more grotesque. Um, and he did at one point contemplate suicide. Um, But instead of, you know, wallowing in self-pity, as it were, he just kept on going, right? Despite his suffering. So that the Ninth Symphony, if not the greatest piece of music ever written, it's certainly got to be up there. And it's written while he's entirely dead. Um, And in, you know, one of the most sort of tragic images I can imagine, uh, Beethoven conducted the debut of the Ninth Symphony but it was a courtesy done to him it was really conducted by a conductor below the stage level because beethoven couldn't hear anything but as a matter of respect they let him pretend do the pretend conducting of it and it's just extraordinary when you think about it such a spectacular piece of music and he could hear none of it you he know okay Nietzsche worries if you if you really take you know moral egalitarianism seriously our obligations to others—the kind of stuff that you know moral philosophers prattle on about endlessly, right? If you really, you know, take that seriously, you wouldn't have been Beethoven, Goethe, or Napoleon. They didn't lead Christian lives in terms of you know conforming their practice to the uh, to the, the dictates of the religion. Um, and, and I do think this is what Nietzsche fundamentally worries about: is that a society that is dominated by these kinds of values, right? is going to be a society without any exemplars of human greatness. It's going to be a society of tedious, boring mediocrities and those that Nietzsche called the last men, who are sort of like, you know, sort of the ultimate, you know, bourgeois. They want everything to be comfortable and peaceful and tranquil, and they have no real aspirations. And, you know, and they certainly, you know, they don't produce any Napoleons or Beethovens or, or Goethe's. That in the end, I think is what Nietzsche is really worried about is that the, this triumph of Christian morality unless it's defeated is going to produce this kind of pathetic uh, pathetic culture. Um, and you know now we have a you know question causal question about whether he's you know right, whether that is the explanation. you know I think one of the things the Marxist tradition does is it shows the way in which capitalist markets contribute to the degradation of culture, right? Nietzsche would have been happy with that aspect of Marxism, because Nietzsche himself, you know, he had this, he, he disliked capitalism very much, but not for any, what we would call any moralism. You know, he wasn't concerned about exploitation and so on. Um, he thought, though, that it contributed to this general degradation of, you know, modern civilization. So. so Nietzsche, I think, hopes to transform the consciousness of at least his rightful readers so that the nascent Goethe's and the nascent Beethoven's will not be misled into taking Christian morality too seriously. That that would be the very sort of simple sloganeer, slogan version of of what we're supposed to take from this in the end. Though, again, if Nietzsche's right about the incompatibility of Christian morality and certain forms of human greatness, then we can all ask the question, Philippa Foot made this point years ago, you know, um, you know, Don't we want to be, live in a society in a civilization where there are Beethovens and Garthas? That's something all of us can care about, even us
1: herd animals. (laughs) And on that note, I'll stop. Yeah, well, well, Brian, I I love doing these uh, dives into singular thinkers. So the last one I did was actually with your colleague Anubav Vasudevan. We talked about C.S. Peirce, and Yeah. No, it was also, it was great. Um, So I hope that as I go forward and continue to kind of diverge from only talking about philosophy, you'll still be interested in coming on again and maybe doing a an episode about jurisprudence, one of your areas of expertise we haven't talked about yet.
0: Jurisprudence is philosophy, but it also uh, (laughs) intersects with a lot of very concrete issues. So so thank you so much again. I look forward to doing that in the future. Thanks again for having
1: this conversation with me.
0: You're very welcome. Thank you.
1: Bye-bye. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Airhawk.